following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. When we look out on the events of the world today, we probably see many scenes that frighten, confuse, or anger us. So the goal of this lecture is to learn how we can understand the meaning of these events, and more importantly, the meaning of all the experiences that we have personally in our lives. It is part of a course called Cultivating Virtue, Conquering Vice on Chicago Gnosis, org that we've been giving to help people with practical steps when you begin seriously trying to apply the Gnostic teachings to your daily life. And so the goal of this lecture will be practical and also to build upon the other introductory lectures that have been given by various instructors leading up to today's lecture. So how can we use life experiences, both pleasant and unpleasant, for our own spiritual growth and transformation? How do we come to learn from our life in a new spiritual way? We commonly interpret our life through a worldly lens because we're really identified with our terrestrial self, my name, my job, my education, my family, my race, etc. But when we approach these teachings, we're really trying to come into contact with our eternal self, our soul, our spirit, our inner divinity. And for that, we need to take a different approach than we commonly take when we view our lives. So there's a really great verse in the Bible. Actually, it's from the eighth chapter of Romans, verses five through seven. Paul of Tarsus stated that they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit mind the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. What Paul's pointing out for us here is that when we are so concerned with the things of our flesh, 
providing for our physical life, our physical comfort, taking care of our material needs, and also adding in all those things that we want materially that bring us pleasure materially, but aren't necessarily the things that we need. We are actually in a state of death, spiritually speaking. This is not to go to the extreme of saying that we don't need to worry about getting food or providing for our families or taking care of the deeds that are responsibilities in our worldly life. But when we shift to a spiritual mindset, we are able to do those things in a harmonious way with our own spiritual development. And that's why Paul states so clearly that to be carnally minded is death for our soul, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. When our soul is awakened, when our essence, which has been mentioned before as the seed of our soul, our consciousness, is active, we are able to experience a deep sense of peace, even as we go through our lives doing all of the necessary things we have to do. And even as we see the tremendous events that are taking place on the world stage, we have the life within us. We have the serenity of God's law in our heart. And that is what gives us the ability to remain peaceful, even through events that would cause most people to become extremely anxious or irritable or angry. We know in this teaching that we exist within four bodies of sin. These are the physical body, the vital body, which provides the energy that animates our physical body, the astral body, which is the vessel for our emotions, and the mental body, which is the body of our thoughts. And it's been talked about in previous lectures, but just to recap, each of these bodies are are subtle. Uh, aside from the physical body, which is a dense body, the subtle bodies are not something that we can see directly with our physical eyes, but they are something that all of us are experiencing continually throughout the day. We are constantly thinking in most of our cases. We are also feeling, we are moving around physically, and that vital energy is continually spreading throughout our body to keep us alive, to keep our heart beating. But we call these the four bodies of sin because these are what are referred to as lunar bodies. They are bodies that are given to us by nature and they are subject to the laws of nature. And that is why Paul of Tarsus points out that the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God because this mind, the lunar mental body, is subject to the laws of nature, the basic laws of karma, physical and energetic cause and effect. But that law of God is a law of spiritual growth, of eternal life, of development and compassion for all beings. It's a kind of eternal wisdom that our carnal mind, our common worldly mind, is not able to access. Our carnal mind is always selfish and seeking for our own worldly benefit, even when it hurts the people around us. And that's not in accordance with the higher law of divinity, which is mercy, compassion, and a penetrating spiritual wisdom. And I want to talk also about the ego, which has been mentioned in other lectures, because the ego is what inhabits these lunar bodies. And the ego is what causes us to no longer be aware of God's law and aware of what our own inner divinity wants us to do and wills to be done. Instead, our ego is aware of all of the various and contradictory desires that we might have. So we might be experiencing gluttony or greed, envy, lust, 
all forms of selfishness, which are related to our worldly life. How can I get more and more and more for me, me, me? But this is enmity against God because God is the source of all life for all beings. And when we separate into a false self, an ego, we are using all of the beautiful vessels of nature that we've been given to sin, to act in ways that are inharmonious. Especially when we sin against the law of chastity, the preservation of the sacredness of sex. We are also showing enmity toward God because sex is the source of all life, just as God is the source of all life. So in this teaching, we really need to change our mindset to how can we perform acts that are spiritually beneficial for us. And in order to do that, to break from the habit of worldly mindedness, we need to awaken that essence, that seed of our soul to extract the spiritual meaning from life's various experiences. In order to start to awaken this new kind of conscious vision of our life, we need to develop the capacity of attention. Gurdjieff, who's a famous esoteric teacher preceding our tradition, but on which we have a lot of correlation in our tradition as well, gave us the following example. He stated, an aspiring pianist can never learn except little by little. If you wish to play melodies without first practicing, you can never play real melodies. It is the same with psychological ideas. To gain anything, long practice is necessary. So in order to awaken this very conscious and profound state of being, we need to start with the little things, the attention. We need to begin by developing the capacity for attention because most of us nowadays, it's said, have the attention of a goldfish. We receive a lot of external information from the news, from television, movies, music, text messages, phones, computers, etc. And so all the time our attention is constantly distracted and moving from one thing to the next. So we need to develop a sort of permanence of attention that is the foundation on which we can go into a more profound state of self-awareness and observation of what is happening within us, as well as what is happening outside of us in our lives. So Gurdjieff was asked by one of his students, how can we gain attention? And he answered that there is no attention in people. You must aim to acquire this. Self-observation is only possible after acquiring attention. Start on small things. So the student asked, what small things can we start on? What should we do? And Gurdjieff provided a somewhat amusing response when he said, your nervous and restless movements make everyone know that you have no authority and are a fool. With these restless movements, you cannot be anything. The first thing for you to do is to stop these movements. Make this your aim. Only after this, you can perhaps gain attention. Gurdjieff is using these kinds of unconscious movements, these fidgets, so to speak, as a way to point out that we don't even have control over our body. We're not even consciously aware that we're moving around all the time. And so in order to first become aware of the way that we move and gain some control over our body and be conscious of that, we have to focus our attention on one thing. He gives the example of these kinds of nervous movements, but you can also focus on your breathing. Always be conscious of your physical breath because our physical bodies are a wonderful place for us to focus continually 
throughout the day as we're moving around. And by watching your breath continually, you will gradually strengthen your attention. And then after that attention is strengthened, you'll begin to discover that a new kind of consciousness emerges while you act throughout the day. So you will be focusing on your breath and also talking to a friend or maybe working at your job. And through this division of your attention between the outer world and yourself, in this case, your breath, a new kind of consciousness emerges in that middle space. And that is just a taste of the kind of conscious awareness that we need for really profound self-observation. This attention is a foundation on which we can expand attention to observe our three brains. So what are the three brains? They are three centers to process different information, different stimulus, and different kinds of energy. The first is the intellectual brain, which we can consider the thinking center. The intellectual brain, of course, is associated with our physical brain and is where we often process all kinds of intellectual information. Some of us are very intellectual people, and so we feel very comfortable with thinking things through reasoning through life. We like to read a lot of books or theorize often, and that might be the tendency that we have. However, there are two other brains that we also use. And the second is the emotional brain, the feeling center. This is associated with our heart and often we feel this energy in the solar plexus area. So if you've ever felt an emotion of fear, you might feel that sinking in your gut. That is the emotional brain. So for those of us who have imbalance towards the emotional brain, we might be constantly overwhelmed by emotions. We might really like social dramas or romances or watching TV shows that really stimulate our emotions. And we might have trouble with really coming to a conclusion about how to take action or being reasonable in a time where we're very emotionally agitated. The third brain is the motor instinctive sexual brain, the motor center. And this is responsible for animating our physical body. All of the unconscious processes of the body, like the heartbeat or the sexual instinct or your impulse when you are burned to pull away from the fire, right? And for those of us who have an imbalance towards in this center, we might be very active people, always on the go, loving sports and not take time to nourish our emotional brain or to really think things through. All of us have all three of these centers and we're using them all the time, but we need to be aware of when we might be out of balance because if we are out of balance, we are often stealing energy from some of the brains and channeling that energy to the brain in which we have a predisposition. So if I'm a very intellectually centered person, then I might be stealing all of the energy from my physical body or even some emotional energy to keep my mind always active, always studying, always thinking through new things. And as a result, I might become sick physically or I might develop some kind of mental imbalance such as schizophrenia. Emotionally brained people who are investing too much energy in that emotional center can develop emotional illnesses like depression or anxiety disorders. People who abuse their motor instinctive sexual brain might overuse their physical body to the extent in which they can develop a lot of physical disabilities that create problems for them later on in life. 
So Sama and Bior teaches us in the fundamentals of Gnostic education that the balanced and harmonious function of the three brains results in the saving of vital values and as a logical consequence, the prolongation of life. These vital values are distributed among our three brains in different proportions. So we could say, for example, that our intellectual brain has 20 vital values and our emotional brain might have 30 vital values and our motor instinctual sexual brain has 50 vital values. And the more that you use one brain, the more that you use up those values. But preserving these vital values is essential to prolong our life, our physical life. And preserving these vital values is also essential to awakening our consciousness and prolonging our spiritual awareness of what is happening throughout our daily life. So we really need to learn how to balance these brains. If we are too intellectual, how do we engage in activities that harmoniously develop our emotional center and our motor center? And if we are imbalanced physically, how do we do different activities to develop our mind and heart? If we're imbalanced emotionally, how do we do activities to develop our mind and keep our body strong and healthy? Samuel Anvior stated that the ancients knew how to intellectually cultivate the three brains. They did this through classical art, music, poetry, dance, theater, and opera. We think about that kind of information, which stimulates the mind, heart, and body in different ways all at once. We might realize that it's very different from the one, the education that we received in school. Most of us in the West are very intellectual because we receive that training throughout our school life. And so we need to take a conscious effort into redeveloping all three centers in harmony at the same time. So I really encourage you to find classical art, music, poetry, dance, theater, or opera that inspires you, that you have a really unique spiritual affinity toward. And begin to extract the spiritual meanings from these art forms. As you look at a painting, or you watch a play, or you listen to classical music, try to extract with your consciousness the spiritual significance that is embedded into those art forms. And as you are, gain the ability to analyze art in this way, you will also be able to start to develop the ability to analyze your own life experiences as scenes in a spiritual drama in which you have to learn the various personal lessons that your inner God has provided for you. Everything in our life is controlled by karma, the law of cause and effect, but our inner divinity very intelligently organizes the experiences of our life in such a way that they become a gymnasium to strengthen us psychologically and spiritually. So when we see a scene in an opera in which the hero of the opera is really struggling with a profound emotion, and we come to understand what that scene signifies for the development of one's soul, then we might take a moment of turmoil in our own personal life and reflect on it in meditation to see what this means in the overall arch of our development. Many of the experiences in our life uh, help us to see our own ego. So we have to experience difficult situations in order to see the imbalances that come out in our intellect, or in our heart, or in our mind that will cause us to act in an egoic way, in a worldly mindset, in, against God's will. 
things that cause us to hurt other people or to even cause harm to ourselves because we're not thinking in accordance with the harmony of God's wisdom. And Gurdjieff talked about this when he said that there is a, um, a sort of lamp of consciousness. And this lamp requires energy in order to continue burning. And as we try to observe or pay attention to ourselves, our physical body or our emotional center or our intellectual center throughout the day, we often run out of energy. Those vital values are exhausted. Part of this is because when we act in an egoic way, we are expending too much energy. And so to act in a lustful way or a greedy way or an envious way wastes a lot of our vital energy and causes us to become intellectually, emotionally, and physically depleted. Then we just don't have any energy left to be consciously aware of our breathing or our emotional and intellectual brains or our motor instincts, right? So how do we act in a way that is peaceful and harmonious? balanced in the three brains in order to prolong that attention. Gurdjieff gave us the example of a lamp and also the example of a small accumulator, which today we could compare to an electric battery. We know that when a battery is depleted, the lamp runs out, right? Gurdjieff explains that the intellectual mind is like a very small battery with little energy, which is not sufficient to maintain our conscious attention. So, when we are very identified with our intellectual mind during the process of self-observation, we're often not able to really pay attention to our body or our heart. And we usually are not able to sustain our self-attention for very long. We're focusing in our mind in a very intellectual way. What am I thinking? What am I doing right now? What is the other person saying? How do I feel in my heart? We're too identified with the mind. We have to remember that we are not just a mind. We're not just brains with legs to carry our brains around, right? We have a heart, we have a body, we have a soul. So throughout the day, we need to observe the heart and the body. And we need to balance ourselves because the heart and the body, the emotional and the motor centers often have much more vital energy than the mental body, the mental brain. So in order to stay self-aware for longer periods of time, we need to really incorporate the energy of all three brains simultaneously. And this is difficult. So in the very beginning, remember, we're focused just on one aspect of our physical life throughout the day continually to develop our attention. Then we begin to expand that awareness to the emotional and intellectual center. But we don't do this in an intellectual way. We do this in a very conscious way just observing, not intellectually analyzing, what is my body doing? Okay, thinking, I'm moving my hands, but rather we are observing the movement of our hands. We are feeling it with all of our conscious being. We are feeling the emotions of our heart. We are observing our mind without needing to interpret those thoughts, just observing the thoughts as they enter the screen of the mind and go. It takes time to develop this skill, just like any Aspiring pianist has to begin with a very simple skills in order to be able to play beautiful melodies. We begin with the basic skill of attention and we gradually expand it to the three brains in order to really reach this profound state of self-observation. 
Self-observation is a very essential skill for our spiritual development because when we observe ourselves, we are not so identified with our life experiences. If somebody says something critical towards me, usually I'm so focused on what they say that I mechanically react to them in a very instinctual, carnal-minded way, acting from an ego, a sense of pride maybe. And I'm not at all aware of my my intellectual brain, emotional brain, or motor brain when I'm acting like that. I'm acting in a totally unconscious way, just as someone unconsciously fidgets when they're nervous without even noticing it. So when we have self-observation, we can observe the outer world, this example of someone criticizing us, and we can see simultaneously what emerges in our mind, in our heart, and in our body to react to that person. And then we have the conscious awareness to be able to hopefully choose in that moment if we want to respond in the instinctive way or if we want to respond from a more conscious place in accordance with God's will. It's not easy to develop this skill, but it is essential and it will benefit you in so many ways. Developing the ability to live harmoniously and not waste our vital values through these egoic states, we are able to prolong our physical life. But more importantly, we're able to develop our spiritual life and to perceive new aspects of consciousness, new sides of life that we never saw before. So in his book, Fundamentals of Gnostic Education, Samuel Anvior offers us this beautiful example of what one might experience during self-observation. He states, the revolutionary psychology of the new age teaches that three distinct psychological aspects exist within each person. Thus, we crave a thing through one part of our psychic essence, yet we desire a decidedly different thing with another part. And we do a totally opposing thing in, through the third part i.e. in a moment of supreme pain, perhaps the loss of a beloved relative or any other intimate tragedy, our emotional personality can reach even to desperation while our intellectual personality asks itself the why of such a tragedy, whilst the personality of movement only wants to run away from the scene. We can all relate to having an experience like this, right? And that is the key for beginning to digest our life experiences. When we experience a situation like this, we use the steps that we've just talked about. We awaken our consciousness through the attention. We balance the three brains to see this in a harmonious way. And then we observe ourselves. What is happening in my body right now? What is happening in my heart right now? What is happening in my mind right now? That allows us to perceive life from the spiritual mind instead of from the carnal mind. That allows us to really understand ourselves, to see what is inside of us, to observe a new ego of pride or of fear or of lust or jealousy that comes out in such a moment. And that's why all of the experiences in life are more useful to us than any chapter in a book. Because one experience in your life, if you are able to be conscious, to observe it, and later to meditate on it and really extract the spiritual insight and wisdom from that moment of your life, 
can teach you how to evolve spiritually, can show you who you are now in this moment, psychologically speaking, and can unveil to you how God can transform you. And God does transform you in a moment like this when you are awake. If we experience a moment of losing a beloved relative or losing something precious to us in an unconscious way, all we do is suffer and we react mechanically and often cause more suffering. But if we experience the same situation in a conscious way, we feel that grief, but we are able to understand it as a spiritual lesson about life, about the impermanence of life or the value of our human relationships. And we're also able to provide comfort to the people around us instead of becoming lost in self-absorbed pain. That's the value of this process, attention, balancing the three brains and self-observation. But meditation is really the final key to gain the most insight from our lives. When we meditate on a situation that we experience today, we can see the reactions in our three brains and observe them in a state of serenity and then we can penetrate into more insight, deeper insight about those situations. So I give the following as a suggestion for your meditation practice to do each night as you are working throughout the day to observe yourself in the three brains. First, become comfortable, physically comfortable. You need to find a physical position that's comfortable for you in which you can sit without falling asleep and maintaining attentiveness throughout your meditation. And then become aware of your three brains. Am I experiencing any disequilibrium in my physical body, in my vital body right now? What am I feeling emotionally right now? What kind of thoughts are passing through my intellect? That awareness will help us to calm down, to settle the three brains. We especially need these three brains to be balanced and in harmony when we are meditating. So take the first part of your meditation just to relax, breathe deeply, become aware of your three brains. And then when you feel like you are in balance, when you feel like you are relaxed but attentive and consciously awake, then you can reflect on a difficult life experience, whether one from that day or from your past and watch it on the screen of your mind. In the beginning, it's very challenging not to get re-identified with that experience. We need to be able to maintain serenity and observe what comes up in our three brains when we reflect on this experience without then fueling more energy into those responses. So if I reflect on an experience where I was rejected by someone that I loved, then I feel pain and anger coming up in my heart. I'm thinking critical thoughts about that person. And maybe my body is even clenching, clenching my fists. Then that's not what we need. We need to be able to then breathe, relax the body, relax the emotions, relax the mind, and stay in balance as we observe and see and feel what is happening in our three brains. Okay, I'm observing this feeling of hatred in my heart. I'm observing these critical thoughts. I'm not continuing to fuel that hatred or continuing to think more critical thoughts. I'm just observing them and praying to my inner divinity to show me myself as I really am. 
And that is what it means to observe these reactions with equilibrium, conscious awareness. Remember that that situation can't hurt you in that moment of meditation. It's not happening presently. It's not the present moment. So don't get re-identified with it and bring it back to life. Just observe it and study it and see yourself because that situation is a mirror which will help you to observe yourself and what you truly are. We might think we're a great person, always trying to do our best for others, but a moment like that can show us that within us, we really do have a part of ourselves, an ego that is very ugly, that is filled with hatred, that wants to criticize or hurt other people. And that is the valuable information that life can give us that we can't learn by reading a book about somebody else's life, right? If we are able to, we can go into a deeper state of relaxation and observe new insights. This takes time, but those who are skillful with meditation, who've been meditating for a long time, can then enter into this deeper state of relaxation in which the mind is blank, but open to new perceptions. And some images may come onto the mind. And that image can encode a spiritual message from your inner divinity, which relates to the situation that you were just observing. And you can write down those images or any observations that you had about your three brains in a spiritual diary. And whether in that meditation or in a subsequent meditation, you can reflect on those new insights that you've gained and try to go deeper into them. If you are meditating on a particularly traumatic experience or maybe a set of traumatic experiences that are related, this is not something you are going to fully comprehend in one meditation sitting. So you need to continue to record these observations in a diary, at least that's my recommendation, and then to each time meditate deeper and deeper and deeper and keep going. Our first meditation will be very superficial. You might see a superficial egotistical quality in one of the three brains. But if we then meditate on that quality and we go deeper into it, we see that behind that, there is a deeper suffering. There is a deeper pain. And each layer takes us deeper into the inner states of our psychology. And with this meditation, we're going to really extract meaning from our lives that will really transform the whole way that we experience life. Before applying Gnostic teachings to my daily life, I was so confused and suffering all of the time. And I, most of the time, didn't think that there was any meaning to my suffering. I had a very kind of nihilistic approach to life that suffering is just meaningless and life doesn't have any purpose. But little by little, by applying these teachings, I began to understand a really profound and magical significance to the things that happened to me, to the experiences I have, to my relationships with other people, and see that within each one of those experiences, my inner God is giving me a profound lesson that I need to change, to improve myself, to grow as a spiritual being, and to also to destroy my ego, to eliminate it through the power of my inner divinity, and to be purified, to become a spiritually minded person who's in equilibrium with my inner divinity so that God can act through me in a harmonious way that helps others instead of my ego acting through those four bodies of sin and causing a lot of pain for myself and for other people around me. There's a 
final verse from the Bible that I'd like to share with all of you because it gives me a lot of strength through moments of tribulation. And I use this verse quite often before meditating to set the right mindset when I reflect on something painful that's happened to me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, Paul of Tarsus wrote, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This process of self-observation and meditation helps us transform our mind from that carnal mind we talked about in the first slide to the spiritual mind. We begin to see new aspects of life that we could never have witnessed before because our consciousness as a faculty, as a sense, opens up new inner worlds to us. Our dreams at night become much more vivid and much more meaningful. And the experiences we have in dreams can also be analyzed in meditation, just in the way that our physical experiences can be analyzed. The symbols of our dreams can also enlighten us as to how to experience the symbolic significance of things that happen to us in our life. That's why art and drama and scripture is so valuable for us to learn spiritually. And when we learn how to interpret something, an opera or a play or a beautiful work of classical music on a spiritual level, then that gives us the ability to apply that same method of spiritual conscious analysis to our own daily life. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to take them now. You can type them in the chat if you need to, or we might be able to take those questions by unmuting you if you raise your hand. Do you think dreams can be precognitive or represent our insecurities and fears? It's a really wonderful question because just as we experience life in an unconscious and mechanical way. We often experience dreams in that same way. So yes, we have a lot of egotistical dreams, which are just showing us that we have some sort of emotional turmoil that we're experiencing or that we're afraid of some situation. Or maybe we have a dream in which um, we really see our envy towards another person in a symbolic way. That's why we need to interpret and dissect the meaning of these dreams through meditation. Because if we just look at them in a superficial way, we're not going to see what egotistical qualities of ourselves that they are trying to reveal to us. But we also have visions or dreams that are very awakened and which have a much more spiritual and conscious significance to us and teach us um, some profound wisdom from our inner divinity. So it's also good to distinguish if this is an egotistical dream, which is just my ego acting out, which is valuable because it shows us an ego of, our, of ourselves that we need to see and analyze and recognize is, is in there being active. But there are also really valuable dreams that are much more profound and you can also become lucid in your dreams at night and ask your inner divinity to teach you and give you insight 
about something that you're struggling with. And then you'll often be answered in a symbolic way, which is why we need meditation and that ability to extract the significance spiritually of those symbols. How do you cope with challenges remembering your dreams? Another great question. Yeah, especially in the beginning because we're very imbalanced and we are depleting a lot of energy from our three brains throughout the day. And we don't have any vital energy left to be conscious during our dreams at night. So if you have trouble remembering your dreams, I have a few suggestions. Of course, the first is that you need to be really trying to rebalance your three brains and not waste a lot of energy and vital energy throughout your day. Don't get overwhelmed emotionally or do activities that deplete you of energy, like unnecessarily theorizing and reading a lot of intellectual books. I mean, of course, if you have a job where you need to do that, do what is necessary, but don't over deplete yourself. Don't watch uh, television shows, which really waste a lot of emotional energy. Do physical activities that keep you healthy, but not too much physical exertion, which will deplete the energy. That's all related to the first strategy to save and preserve your vital force. Secondly, there is a special kind of diet that you can have in which each morning you take nuts. I like to use almonds, honey, and citrus fruit, like orange juice or oranges. A few things that are very helpful before sleeping is a prayer to the maiden of our memories. This is found in the Gnostic prayer book by Glorian Publishing. The prayer to the maiden of our memories is from Samuel and Vior's teaching. And it is a prayer that will ask our inner divinity to take a maiden of our memories out from our physical body in order to remember everything that happens when we are asleep. And then in the morning when you wake up, you can use the mantra, Raum, Gaum, over and over to remember your dreams. You can also recite this mantra mentally if you have a partner who you might wake up by doing it physically. You don't want to move around a lot. You want to just recite the mantra and allow the dreams to come back to you. So that's Raum, Gaum. And finally, I think that performing a retrospection meditation before you go to bed, where you review the events of your day, starting from that moment, going back to the very moment that you woke up that day, or you can start from the moment you woke up up to the present moment. I find that in my experience, that has been so helpful. It activates my conscious memory. It awakens my consciousness, allows me to reflect on all of the events of my day, but it is also somehow strengthens my ability to remember all the dreams that I have throughout the night when I wake up and do the Raum Gaum mantra the next morning. So those are some recommendations and strategies for remembering dreams. What realms do we experience nightmares in? Nightmares are in the, what we call the inferior astral plane. So if you've ever seen the image of the tree of life, and there are many higher planes of existence above us that we experience consciously when we're having a real conscious, divine, awakened vision. But most of the time, those dreams in which we're in a very egotistical states, we're running away from a monster, things like that are experienced in the inverted astral plane in which this inferior astral plane is where all of our egoic qualities live. So the things that we see in those realms are real, but they are subjective. They are things that are 
only real because of our ego. They are egoic states. And like I said, experiencing those lower dimensions of reality, the hell realms, the infernal realms is valuable because it shows us where we really are, where certain aspects of our consciousness are trapped in ego. Yes, hello. Go ahead, what's your question? Okay, um, I, I just had a question about referring to the four bodies of sin. When in those bodies, when consciousness is um, is taken from those bodies and we're we're perceiving not with the sin of those bodies, is that something that is a, a different body that is removing, um, extracting consciousness from those bodies? Or is it something within the bodies themselves that is not of sin? Or is it both? That, that the, the perception outside of those bodies, bodies of sin, but is it only not just sin that inhabits those bodies? That's a great question. Um, thanks so much. So um, in this case, there's actually another body, not a body of sin, but another body called the causal body, which is the body of willpower. It is really our soul. So that body is what is often acting through the four bodies of sin, physical, vital, astral and mental. And that body of willpower, when it becomes trapped in self-will, in ego, is perceiving everything in a self-centered way. But that self is a false self. It's a illusion. And so that's why we call them the body of sins, because they're bodies in which we are able to sin against the will of God and to perform actions that are inharmonious. Because sin we can think of in, not in the stigmatizing way, but in a way that is an action that is not harmonious with God's will. So when we experience something consciously, as you mentioned, like on those higher levels of nature, we are able to go in our consciousness. So we're not necessarily bringing our body of sin with us, but yes, sometimes we are experiencing through our lunar astral body, something conscious. So that body itself doesn't have to be a vehicle through which we are always experiencing things egotistically, but is a um, vehicle through which we might be able to go internally to a higher dimension, a higher astral plane, if our inner divinity wills it, and to see something consciously. So, so is it like the, the spirit is coming into the, the body of sin and extracting or purifying it? What we're talking about here is we experience everything through the consciousness and the consciousness for most of us is 97% ego. So when we experience something consciously through our body, our physical body, a body of sin or our astral body, a body of sin, 97% uh, of the time we are seeing something through the filter of the ego, but there might be 3% of the time when we are able to experience that through a body of sin, like a astral body in the internal planes or the physical body in our, in our physical life, 3% of the time, our consciousness can be, can be pure, can see that exactly as it is. The lunar bodies will eventually be dissolved by nature. And if we perform the entire Gnostic work, you know, the three mountains, uh, we create solar bodies uh, to replace the lunar bodies. Mm. So those are just um, temporary vehicles they're subject to the laws of nature. So they can't become eternal vehicles. But I wouldn't say that 
yeah, in a sense, we, we purify those bodies of sins as we eliminate ego, but we're not so concerned with purifying the lunar astral body as we're concerned with purifying the consciousness itself, because the consciousness then can perceive through any body, astral, mental, causal body, physical body, without ego. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Looks like we have some more questions. With meditation, do you seek guidance like a prayer or wait for the spirit to speak to you or both? Yeah, I always meditate before I, I'm sorry, I always pray before I meditate. And so sometimes you're just observing things as they are. And then as I stated, when you go into a deeper state of meditation, that's when you try to allow the mind to become blank and see if some new images or some new insights appear to you. So in that case, you can sit down and you can pray, you know, inner divinity, help me understand the situation and then observe. And then in the deepest state of relaxation, the deepest state of meditation, you will receive that guidance and hear, or, or most of the time I receive it through a visual image, a symbol that helps me to understand what my inner divinity wants me to, to know about that situation. Okay, so any advice for the instinctual center? I'm not sure if this question is asking about how should we develop it? If you could maybe reframe that question, you said there's not much information given about it, but it helps to observe it. Yeah, so if we have an over imbalance where we're spending too much instinctual, physical, sexual energy, then we need to perform activities with the other brains, you know, something very emotional, like listening to classical music, or something that might be more intellectual, like studying a scripture, Bible study, that can help us to balance it. Okay, someone said, my overarching emotion right now, as I anticipate my dad's death is anger and judgment toward those who haven't taken the COVID precautions we've been asked are you saying to meditate on that? And it will take me deeper and deeper into the lesson, right? So everything, I mean, there is a lot of chaos happening in our world right now. And a lot of us feel upset about that, right? So everything happening in the world right now can be meditated on. So you can meditate on the COVID-19 pandemic. You can meditate. What I find more valuable is you can meditate directly on your anger and judgment of those people. Most of the time we see we see pride, we see a sense of, you know, entitlement. Now, obviously this is also related towards a lot of pain and suffering that you feel about your dad's passing. So in this case, you might need to wait until a little bit after the situation or until you've really developed the skill of equilibrium and meditation in order to go deeply into finding those answers. But meditating on it a little bit, a little bit every day, and observing those emotions as they come up, when you turn on the news and you feel that kind of anger and observing that, that demands that other people be up to the standards that we want other people to live by, that can be something that helps us to go deeper into that, um, that understanding of our own ego. When observing emotions, if you are in a situation where you can't meditate immediately, how do we meditate on it later? I find that my emotions and thoughts are different when I wait to meditate. Sometimes that's a good thing. So if you're in a situation where, you know, so much is happening, somebody's yelling at you, for example, that you can't really maintain your conscious equilibrium in that moment, 
you might be good to wait until your emotions have calmed down a little bit and then to observe it. And even if your emotions and thoughts are a little different when you meditate, just see what's there and try to really visualize very clearly that event. And it should bring out some of the emotions that you felt in that moment. And this is about also what I talked about when we're actually observing through our three brains simultaneously in meditation. Because if we are meditating in a very intellectual way, then we are just thinking, oh, I remember I felt angry. I felt really annoyed with that person. I felt impatient. But that's really superficial. That's really intellectual type of meditation. So we want to really bring that feeling into our heart by, by replaying the scene on the screen of memory and see that feeling in our heart. But like I said, it's a delicate balance. It's very hard to maintain equilibrium because that emotion, you'll feel it come up again in your heart and you don't want to fuel more energy into it. You just want to observe it, let it pass, and then reflect on what you just observed coming out again in your heart or in your instinct or in your mind. It's very difficult to maintain that balance. So don't be frustrated if you don't get it right away. It might take some time. Okay, let's see the next one. Some dreams are just projections of our fears, but they're also real in a sense because your ego has a form of matter. It's just not objectively real. It's not something created by divinity. It is, um, you've used your, your energy to create a false identity, which is the ego. So at night, when you see a dream that you're filled with fear, that dream is, is showing you something real in your own subconscious mind, in your own ego. So it is, it is real, it, is, it has matter, but it is not permanent. It is not eternal because it will, the ego will be destroyed eventually, whether by nature or by us consciously in, uh, in collaboration with our inner divinity here. Is there a method to identify if we are following our intuition versus ego? Oh, I'm so glad that you brought this question because I forgot to say something in my lecture which is exactly about this. So another instructor stated that when we are in harmony in the three brains, when we feel that peace, but we, we are observing something in our life, but we feel that the three brains are acting in harmony with one another, then we know that we are conscious, that that is the consciousness and that is our intuition, that is our real conscious being, our spirit, um, that can be active in that moment. Better set our soul. And when we feel that the three brains are in complete disarray and acting in different ways, we want to run away, but we also are feeling a lot of fear and agitation and our mind is trying to reason out what should I do next. The, that kind of agitation in the three brains helps us to identify that we are in an ego. And it's best in those moments, if we're able to, to calm down, to try to calm the three brains, to breathe deeply, meditate if you can, calm the three brains. And then through that state of equilibrium in the three brains, you'll be able to observe that same situation without seeing it in the filter of ego. When we meditate on an ego we observe during the day, is it good to feel conscious remorse and even be crying while praying to our divine mother for help and comprehension of the ego we want to eliminate? Great question. I don't think it's necessarily good, but I think it's fine. It's, it's okay to feel that, that conscious remorse and to cry deeply from our soul. 
that happens to me often when I meditate on painful situations, especially ones in which I did something evil towards another person. Uh, so yes, I think it is a good quality of the soul to feel conscious remorse and to cry during meditation, that's fine. And of course, praying to our divine mother for help and to comprehend that ego because we really deeply wanna change. We don't wanna continue hurting people and hurting ourselves through these kinds of egotistical actions. So our divine mother is our strength. And that, uh, that prayer to our divine mother to come and help us. Uh, you know, when I say inner divinity, I mean divine mother, divine father, pray to get them to help you. That's essential in meditation. So glad you guys are asking these questions um, because I really do want to emphasize prayer with meditation. Okay, uh, let's see here. Do these three brains correspond to the neocortex, mammalian and reptilian brains? They have more of a relationship with the three nervous systems. Another instructor talks about how these relate to the central nervous system, uh, the parasympathetic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, et cetera. Or if another instructor knows those three, feel free to chime in. We have the cerebrospinal nervous system relating to the intellectual brain. We have the grand sympathetic nervous system relating to the heart. And we have the parasympathetic nervous system relating to our sexuality and our instincts. We have to remember that these nervous systems are a form of intelligence. As they process energies and forces, they help to create our experience, but also they are the channels by which the vital values can flow and whether our consciousness or our ego can act. So we have to remember, as the lecturer was explaining, to use these nervous systems well, we should be conscious of their processes. So the nervous systems have that correlation. And while some other people may refer to reptilian mammalian brains, we use these three brains and nervous systems distinctively in this way. Most importantly, we have to remember that the brains themselves, the intellect, the emotions, and our motor instinctive sexuality is merely a machine. It's a means of operating and existing. So you can look at those resources online. We'll give you some links. Thank you. Next question is, can a person defeat all their egos in this lifetime or would it take many lives to do so? What is the worst ego of them all? Oh, great question. So for most of us, it's going to take more than one lifetime to do this work, but it is possible if someone really has tremendous willpower and is very dedicated to performing this work every day, um, a very, very serious person could, could it eliminate all the egos in one lifetime. For this question, I really recommend reading The Three Mountains by Samuel and Vior, which is available on the Glorian website because that, that talks about eliminating all the egos in one lifetime. And what is the worst ego of them all? I guess my initial answer to this is lust because through lust, we lose a lot of vital forces that are very sacred and are very necessary for us to continue eliminating more egos and continue to build the soul, to develop solar bodies and also to really connect with our inner divinity. So lust is, is very serious. It's a very difficult ego to tackle, but every day we should be working on lust. We should be eliminating that ego little by little weakening it so that we gain more conscious strength because 
our vital energy, our sexual energy is directly related to our willpower. So the more we lose that energy, the less willpower we have to keep up in this work. We lose a lot of energy through that. Okay. Can you speak a bit on actively participating in life or the human experience as opposed to observing life or the human experience as a watcher, meaning some spiritual speakers speak of the spiritual realm that one becomes far removed from the human experience as a spiritual being? Yes, it makes sense. Absolutely. Great question. So as I mentioned, we most of the time are so fused with our physical life that we don't have any kind of inner spiritual life that we're conscious of. So that's the first step is to separate from the physical life enough that we have energy and we become aware of our own psychology and what's happening inside of us throughout the day instead of just what's happening outside of us throughout the day. But you're right. Sometimes people try to use spirituality as a way to escape from life. And we are trying to use spirituality as a way to live our life more consciously to perform God's will in our lives more consciously. So I gave an example of grieving the loss of a family member, a loved one, and how in that moment, if we are unconscious of our inner state, we can just very easily become overwhelmed by our selfish suffering, you know, and our anger and our pain. And that's, that's very common, right? Uh, but if we become conscious of that pain inside of us and we observe whatever egos are reacting to this situation. And then we are able to kind of eliminate that ego and, and maintain that balance. Then we can more meaningfully engage with the other people who are suffering in our life. So you see how we are using that conscious awareness of ourselves as a way to be more invested in a spiritual way with other people. But this kind of spiritual mindedness versus carnal mindedness is that a spiritual minded person realizes that everything that happens in life is temporary and transient and always changing. And in that sense, everything that happens to us is an illusion. So that's not an excuse to just do whatever you want because everything in life is an illusion and nothing lasts, but it is showing us that we need to act from a deeper place, from an eternal place, from a place of spiritual conscious wisdom in order to use this lifetime to perform actions that really develop our own soul and other people and actions that will provide a lasting meaning instead of actions that just gather a bunch of wealth for us in one lifetime that we lose when we die, spiritual acts, virtuous actions gather a kind of spiritual wealth for us that we never lose. We actively participate in our life through good deeds that are part of our conscious state. So when we are more conscious, when we are more awake, when we observe what's happening within us as well as what's happening outside of us, then we participate in life in a, in a meaningful way that is in alignment with the will of our inner divinity. So that's how we should actively participate in life in ways that serve other people, in ways that are the purpose that our own inner God has for us in this lifetime, which we can only know as we go deeper and deeper into meditation and conscious awareness. The next question, I think, is how can one relate to what is called bipolar and the three brains in relationship with someone who is diagnosed as bipolar? Yeah, so bipolar is a, it's an emotional illness. So usually we are, we are born with psychological 
illnesses, or at least with a predisposition to develop a psychological illness at one point in our lives because of actions that occurred in previous lifetimes. So it could be that in this lifetime, someone might have overused their emotional brain and then they develop bipolar, this really strong imbalance where the emotions are extremely manic and, and um, overwhelmingly happy, but in a way that is not really reasonable when we relate it to their actual life or overwhelmingly depressed and overcome with morbidity. So that could be a result of the abuse, the overuse of the emotional brain for um, whether in this lifetime or in a previous lifetime. So when we are working, if we have bipolar, for example, and we are trying to regain balance, we need stability. And in, in some cases that might require, depending on the severity of the bipolar condition for that person, that might require some medication just to get to a point of stability in which then you can work on the egos that, that originally produced those imbalances. But if we have a less severe case, then we might be able to meditate on those egos directly and see what is causing us to become overwhelmingly emotional. Uh, could be related probably with um, egos of pride in a lot of cases. Oh, okay, so here's a clarification about the question asked earlier about the instinctive brain. So the student clarifies that we know what's good for emotional brain, intellectual, sexual brain, uh, for instinctual body reactions with fear, etc. It's not very clear how to transform it. So there may be some kinds of martial arts like Aikido in which you can develop instinct in the body in a, in a way that is um, really a spiritual practice. A lot of ancient martial arts or ancient dance as well could be really good for developing your in instinctual center because especially with martial arts, I mean, the instinct is very active in the moment when you are reacting to somebody's attacks at you, right? What exactly is the threshold of the guardian of the threshold? I think you meant, is this a demon or our egos? It's not a demon. It is the, the full embodiment of our egos. And there's a whole lecture on the guardian of the threshold that I gave recently. So the guardian of the threshold is the embodiment of, of all of our egos. It is every deed that we've done and every emotion we felt and every ego we've developed embodied into one gigantic beast that we see, that we may see in an astral experience when we begin this work very seriously and that we need to conquer because we need to, even though we can't eliminate our ego in one fell swoop, we can subdue our ego enough that we develop some conscious equilibrium in which to work. And that conscious equilibrium is really necessary to start uh, eliminating the egos one by one. So that's a process. But as I talked about, this all begins with attention. So if you feel like you're not getting that equilibrium, look at how you're losing energy throughout the day. What, what are you doing each day that's using up instinctual energy, motor energy, sexual energy, emotional and mental energy? And what are you doing throughout the day that could be wasting all of those energies. So what can you change in your daily behaviors to save some energy and also work on developing attention with the practice that I mentioned earlier. Okay, so I think that was the last one here in the chat, but please, if you have any more questions, feel free to ask. 
So let's see there. The next question here is how do we comprehend and stay conscious with someone who has extreme swings of emotions? Just the same way we have to uh, comprehend and stay conscious through any very, very overwhelming situation. So if you can imagine being in a place where there's a fire, you're, you're stuck in a building where there's a fire. I mean, in that moment, your instinct's going to take over your whole body and you're probably not going to be able to maintain consciousness, right? Or conscious awareness. I hope you will at least maintain your consciousness physically, right? Um, so in that moment, you just won't have the bandwidth. You won't have the capacity of, of conscious stability or conscious energy to maintain that. And so it's the same way when we're dealing with a person who really has extreme swings of emotion, we may just not have the capacity of conscious stability cultivated yet or developed yet in order to really stay conscious with them in that moment. So that's why it's a gradual process. Start with the little things first. Start with a, a small situation and if you need to, you can walk away from, from this person if possible when they're getting too overwhelming for you and go meditate right away if possible on exactly what you're experiencing in that moment with that person. And over time, you're going to be able to stay more conscious in more overwhelming or stimulating situations, right? So we should continue to just keep developing more and more over time and not expect that right away we're going to be able to do this. But it's, it's a long process and it involves all these steps that I just talked about today. So keep meditating on it day after day on, on what egos in you are coming out during that situation with that person, because those egos are what are putting you to sleep, consciously speaking, uh, so that you're not able to maintain your equilibrium when you're interacting with them. Okay, so the question is, is there a good example of what it looks like one should be feeling, thinking, and acting like to be in balance with the three brains. Okay, so what should we be feeling, thinking, and acting like when we're in balance with the three brains? Like what's an example of that, right? I think of the most powerful example is we think about the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Uh, he was, of course, suffering tremendously there, but he was conscious. In the Catholic tradition, there is these uh, stations of the cross where you see these different acts that Jesus did while he was carrying the cross and heading to his crucifixion. And in each one of those acts, you see a tremendous amount of conscious wisdom and compassion for the people around him. So if we are acting in a way that is really filled with love for the people around us and we feel very awake and we are able to really do actions that sacrifice for other people, then that's an example that we would know. We are really acting consciously and not through ego. So study, study the crucifixion of Jesus Christ if you want the best example for what it looks like when one is conscious and acting in balance with the three brains. Okay, so it looks like that was the last question. Thank you everybody for attending and we look forward to seeing you at the next lecture.
To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at ChicagoGnosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.